0: In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a woman with 21 years of military service. She's been both enlisted and a warrant officer. She specialized in counter and human intelligence, She was the first woman ever admitted to the Marine Air Ground Task Force Counter Human Intelligence course. She has tracked and hunted terrorists during her military service with multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, and now is spending her retirement years hunting human traffickers with DeliverFun. If that's not enough, she's also the accomplished author of the L. Anderson series of thrillers that have been released in both novel and graphic novel form. She's here this week to tell her amazing story. Please help me in welcoming A.M. Adair. What's going on?
1: Thank you so much for that, DJ. I I, I mean, I I guess I can go now. you covered everything.
0: (laughs) Okay, I think so. I think we're good. So, I'm so happy that you're here (laughs) and, and talking about everything. You have huge things that are getting ready to happen in your life. And uh, we kind of want to be here and and talk about them. Uh, We have a lot of stuff that uh, you have done in the past that you are about to do in the future and that you're kind of doing in the present. You're a super busy person. But I I always want to start out the interviews by talking about the past. What's kind of led you to where you're at? So if we can talk about your early life and your family a little bit. Was there anything about your family that took you to military, that took you to kind of that giving role for the rest of your life?
1: Truthfully, I've always had a bit of a um, protective streak. But outside of that, the military just wasn't in the cards for me, or at least I didn't think so. It wasn't uh, anything I aspired to be, and I didn't have anybody in my family that was actually in the military. So it was – Really, if it hadn't been for September 11th, it probably would have never happened. But that is what started me on this path. And I haven't looked back since.
0: Well, tell me if it's true. I heard something and I want to confirm it with you. At one point, you were going to be an actress.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my parents were thrilled absolutely thrilled with
0: that (laughs) that's (laughs) what every parent wants their kid to come tell them
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah you know I had a passion for the theater you know and you know, doing plays in high school obviously is nothing like what it is going to be in uh, a professional setting but that was where my head was and so I was convinced I was going to go and I was going to you know be a theater major and it was going to be amazing and i was on my way to do that i started at the ohio state university and i was doing my theater major at the newark campus and uh, I, you know it everything was going all right it was your typical freshman college experience you know you start not going to class so much and you know uh, i was working more than i was actually uh going to school and eventually I was just working. So um that's what I was doing when uh the the planes hit the tower and it took me about two days to decide that I was going to uh enlist in the Navy. Chose the Navy because I always had a thing for water. And then um <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. I grew up in Ohio. It was like, yeah, you know, we got Lake Erie. That's about it. Um but so uh, I, I thought that would be great you know kind of romanticized it like a lot of people do you know uh, going out to sea would be like and ironically you know i retire at 21 years and i never did any time on a ship not once <laughs> it's like i have like eight hours underway during a training event on a mark six and that's pretty much it um but yeah it, if if it hadn't been for September 11th, my life probably would have looked a lot different.
0: Well, uh, do you still have a thing for water? Like, are you <laughs> still <laughs> I mean, because it well, wasn't fulfilled in the Navy. <laughs>
1: yeah, no. I was like, I still have I still love the ocean is to have a thing for water. Maybe not the water here off of Virginia Beach, because well, I you know, I see what gets dumped into that water. <laughs> I guess there's that too. Um But I I do still have um, a little bit of a romanticized idea of what it could be like going out to sea because it didn't get ruined for me. So I can still look at the biggest ships and go, man, that looks awesome. We have like the coolest toys in the world. Um, So I, I haven't been jaded in that regard.
0: And I'm guessing whenever you went to the Middle, uh, middle East and, and on your deployments, it was mostly by plane, not ever by ship. So you said that you did a little bit of training Correct. in one, but that was about it. So, yeah, I can see how that's not ruined for you. Now, when I was in the Army and I was stationed in Hawaii, I, I went to dive school with the Navy and everything. But I was surprised when I met a lot of Navy guys how many couldn't swim. And I,
1: it's shocking, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And, and I would ask them like, well, what are you going to do? You're on a ship. Like if it sinks, what are you going to do? And they're like, I guess I'll drown. And I thought, I mean, that is a conclusion for sure that you could come to, but it it was very strange to me that, that so many people like yourself would say things like I joined the Navy because I had a thing for water or because I like ships. But then you, like, get down into it and you're like, okay, you can't swim. Okay, you've never been on the water. It's, uh, it, I guess I could see how it is. There was never that thing about the Army where I was like, I really like walking around um, to a lot of places. That, I mean, that wasn't the, the thing that got me going. but. When when you Not join just walking the walking
1: around you need to carry like 80 pounds in a rucksack and walk around.
0: Yeah, so, you know, whenever you go to the service, is it everything that you thought it was going to be because you can say with 911, it's kind of, you know, a lot of people joined a uh, very romanticized that was like this generation's Pearl Harbor. So, a lot of people got very patriotic. Now, once you got there, are you thinking the same thing like, wow, you know, I really made the right decision. This is life. I'm into water. And, uh, or was it a complete culture shock to you?
1: Culture shock would be an understatement. Like the first night there, I vividly remember sitting on my rack. I had my knees all curled up into my chest and I was just sitting there going, damn, what the hell did I just get myself into? And, you know, at the time they couldn't even tell me whether or not to cut my hair or anything to go into boot camp because it happened so fast and things had changed so many times so i day two i got in line to do the barber like everybody does but you know i had hair down to you know to my butt and then i walk out and they'd sliced it up to my jawline, and even you know my uh recruit division commander kind of looked at me and go whoa it was like it was such a dramatic change but it was like that everything was from 0 to 120 in a split second and it was just kind of you just did it you just went with the flow you jumped into it it's a little bit like you see in the movies where somebody's barking at you every 5 seconds because you i don't know you breathed wrong you didn't stand in the exact right spot um but overall i didn't I didn't find boot camp all that hard um, as far as from a military standpoint i think the hardest thing for me was just because i was a little bit older and i was in with a you know a bunch of kids who were 17 18 years old you know i'm 22 so i'm not that much older than them still kidding in my own right but comparatively you know with somebody who's fresh out of high school compared to somebody who's done a little bit of college time and been living on their own it was like man did i just get put back in the kiddie section what happened um But overall, I think my my expectations of the Navy were met and exceeded in a lot of ways, uh, both good and bad. Um, Is I and I can't really say I have any complaints. Is like you get out of it what you put into it, and that's the one thing I've taken over the last two decades. Is you know nobody's going to do you any favors, and you're not there for the Navy to do things for you. You, it's service. You are there to sacrifice and be of service. And, you know, it's not about your comfort or your lifestyle. You have to be able to rise above that.
0: As you talk about that, that the Navy's not really there to do things for you. You're there to do things for the Navy. I think that a lot of people don't maybe realize that when they get in And, and I've noticed it in law enforcement and it's maybe because I've been a little older, but I've noticed that a lot of people, Uh, Inner service and they think that everything is just going to be right there. Everything they thought about service, everything that they hoped it would be is just going to be right there at the front door. And they don't realize that it takes a little while to kind of get into that groove to understand everything that's going on. Do you think there's a way to kind of solve that or maybe quell that before people go to basic boot camp, things like that? Because, I, I mean, let's be honest. When they go to MEPS, they're promised the world. And you posted – a—I uh, saw that you posted a picture about that they'll fly uh, Super Hornets and then they're, they're in the mess hall. Is there a way to kind of fix that uh, going forward with the military? Because I think just like in law enforcement, going forward – we're going to be really strapped to be bringing people in.
1: Agreed. And it, truthfully, I think it, it's going to take a radical change in the way we do recruiting and the way we talk to people because, you know, right now the deck is, the, the is stacked against anybody coming in because the guys who are recruiters have their requirements that they have to meet regardless of what that means for the people that bring they bring into service. Um, you know, you could say that everybody goes, takes the same oath of enlistment, so you should know what you're getting into because it's pretty straightforward in that but we also know that people just raise their hand and say it because that's what they're required to do and don't actually pay attention to what they're saying or have had the experience of being held accountable for what they're taking an oath for um, so it could be something as simple as having a point in MEPS where you're talking to the kids who haven't done this kind of thing before and explaining to them that these are not just words that you're going to be held to them. It's This is not the push button to get out of the small town that you didn't want to be in anymore or to get you free college. It's It's real. It's like those are benefits from a life of service that's not something that's owed to you because you signed on the line.
0: Well, and I agree with you on that. Uh, when we talk about that and we talk about recruiters in general, uh, I also heard that you said that you wanted to, let me see if I get all this right. You went to the recruiter, you told him you wanted to travel the world, learn foreign languages and jump out of planes. Now (laughs) I'm confused on so many levels there because first you said you had a thing for the water. Then you said you want to jump out of planes. Let's break them down. You were never on a ship during the Navy. Did you travel the world though? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. So we got that one out of the way. Did you learn foreign languages?
1: Yes. Not well, but yes.
0: Okay. And did you ever jump out of a plane?
1: Not in the military, but yes, I did.
0: (laughs) Okay. So we covered everything that you went to the recruiters. Now, did they have any idea what to do with you? Because at that time, even 2001, there's not a lot of women that are in combat-forward areas, combat-forward jobs Did they have any idea what they wanted to do with you? Or did you maybe have an idea of what you wanted to do?
1: I had a childhood friend who had joined the military for a very short amount of time. And I remembered that she had gone in to be a linguist. So in my head, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to go and be a linguist that check in the box for learning a foreign language. Um, So I started off with that. And ironically, they did tell me that, hey, that you passed you know, the, the language test that they give you to be able to do this job. But we don't have any open billets for a female. So literally it came down to they didn't have a place to put me rack wise, birthing wise down the road. So they wouldn't even give me that rate. So I had to select something else. Um, And when I was choosing, they literally just gave me a list of all the rates in the Navy and just had me read through it. And there was about a paragraph description of each. And that's all I had and i came across intelligence specialists and asked them like hey well what is this and they had no clue so they were zero help so it was literally <laughs> me just taking that little bit that i read in that that you know it was like a two-page cutout from the the blue jacket manual i think but um that and that's what i selected i was like well this sounds cool i can do this like they couldn't even tell me where i was going to go to school after boot camp it was just i'm winging it from here on out
0: well, and I think that goes back to what we talked about. That it, They're doing this job where they're, it's it's numbers. It's not necessarily quality. It's quantity coming in. And you have a lot of guys. You know, I've talked to some of the smartest guys I've ever met on this show that were like Delta guys that when they took their ASVAB, they were like, look, uh, why don't you go over here? You can't be in the Air Force or anything. And then you, like, sit down and you talk to these guys, and they're brilliant. And they're okay. a brilliant strategist, and they – uh, classical music and they read and all these things. And the, and the military is telling them uh, that maybe they should try something else. Maybe they should do this. Maybe they should do that. And so I say all that to say this, when you get in there, is that everything that you thought it would be? Because we've already established about the basic training where it's kind of a culture shock. Once you get to your school though, and you're actually doing something that you were, you know, going in there to do, is that exactly the way you wanted it, or was it another culture shock?
1: I it the Navy has been a culture shock for me from the get go in a lot of ways. So like even after I've been in it as long as I have, I I think I never quite accepted the status quo. So every time I go someplace and I'm like, "Why are we doing it this way?" and I get the, "Well, this is the way we've always done it." My immediate response is, you like just backlash." Like, "No, no, 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 no. We can't do this. We need to." Pay paradigm shift. So I've had a little bit of a culture shock everywhere, even though I'm used to it, if that makes sense. Um, When I went to school, it was a melding of like being in boot camp and being back in high school almost so it was familiar and it almost did not really feel like it was really this is this really what the military is. So it it was a breeze again. um, I did exceptionally well in my classes and I got to select orders that put me to my very first command, which was phenomenal. But um, it, it really was not a challenge. I don't think I really felt any pushback at all until we were doing what was called a dream sheet where you got to select like anything that you had your heart's desire, like where you want to go rank wise. So when it came time to pick orders, you know, you could maybe get something in the wheelhouse. So the first thing I put on there was Naval Special Warfare and they were like, well, you're a woman. Yes. Yes, I am. Thank you for noticing. Um, I was like, well, there's, there's nothing for you to do with the SEAL teams. Well, why not? um so that's just how little was known about what was going on i mean there were there were females who were doing support roles before i got there but that just shows how new it still was um when i finally made it to nsw because i don't accept no for an answer very often um I, i my my troop i was the first one that they had so i mean it was still very very new but i never really thought anybody would tell me no you can't do something just didn't occur to me.
0: Well, I wanted to talk about this a little later, but since you bring it up, let's go ahead and talk about it now. I feel like there's almost a double-edged sword for you there, where you say you want to go to naval special warfare. So that world hasn't been created yet. It's coming about, and and after it got going, it moved very quickly, Uh, unless you would disagree with me because you were on the line there. But it seems like it moved very quickly from the outside looking in. Number two, you're different from a lot of the females that are around. So I feel like you almost have a double-edged sword going both ways. You don't necessarily fit in with the females that you're doing. You don't necessarily fit in with the males. And you're trying to get this job done. So can you talk a little bit about that and the mind state that you're in? Because I feel like that would be more of a hassle than actually going to the schools to (laughs) learning and things like that is just trying to figure out exactly where you fit in and proving yourself to where you do fit in.
1: And say the proving myself, you, you definitely hit it right there, but i think i was very fortunate in that i tried very hard not to let it be about you know man versus you know woman it wasn't a male female thing it was about what job do i want to do and how am i doing it i'm a huge proponent in you know whatever the standard is you hit it you know so i have zero issue with any woman doing any job in the military if they hit the standard and if you try to bring the standard down just to try to make numbers that drives me absolutely insane and if they um bring the standard down to you know just to cater to women that pisses me off even more because you know there are women who can do that job and you've set the standard for a reason it's quality not quantity um but that's how I approached a lot of it so even you know selecting where i wanted to go when i went through my first command eventually coming around and ending up in nsw i didn't let it be a male female thing it was all about i'm going to show you how good i am i'm going to show you what i bring to the table and then once you have an idea of what i can do to make our mission better to be able to get the job done then uh, it's not going to be about a male female thing anymore it's going to be you know my skill set has value added to the overall mission and to the team.
0: And so let's go to the other side of that because you never made it that. Now with the females on the other side, um, you're not really fitting in there either. So what's the mind state you take for that too? Because you, you just pointed out something. You have no problem with anyone doing any job as long as they meet the standard. But whether that be first responder, law enforcement, military, whatever it is, there has definitely become a sliding scale of what it takes to get the job. Uh, other things maybe sometimes go into factor that don't necessarily have anything to do with the job. So let's go to the female section of that. And how do you deal with that?
1: Say that's, I, I'm, I'm going to flat out say it. There are going to always going to be individuals that are going to try to play the system to their benefit and because there is generally an idea of how a a woman should be protected catered to um given a an easier angle there's always going to be a woman who's going to take advantage of that and any way for them to get what they need what to get a leg up they're going to take and unfortunately that kind of gives everybody a bad name it's um it's it's no different than anybody who walks in with a chip on their shoulder and wants to play that card instead of actually earning the job it's just detrimental to good order and discipline it's not something that does anybody any favors except for that individual so therefore in my opinion it's extremely selfish and you know it's not conducive to doing a life of service which you know you're supposed to join the military to serve Um, We all have our different reasons for getting to that point, but you have to understand it that once you're there, you're there for something bigger than the individual and you have to let that go. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people and in a lot of cases, they are women who are used to being coddled and expect to continue to be coddled. It's like, I hate it. Truthfully, I absolutely hate it. But there are just as many women out there who know that they are better in a lot of cases, then their male counterparts who are also then not given an opportunity just because they're not male. And so it's that double-edged sword you're talking about. So you have those who work the system and then you have those who are trying to be the standard or even exceed it, but are held back just because of stereotypes or preconceived notions.
0: So two questions come from that then. The first question would be, when you see someone like that, Is that detrimental to a mission? Does it put the mission second and the person first, which we all know personnel go first. That's not what I mean by that. (laughs) What I mean is, does it set what needs to be done behind everything else in order to get the job done? And number two, you've been in 21 years. You had to have come across this at one point where you're doing what needs to be done and there's a person to your left or to your right, whether it be man, woman, whatever it is that's there for that selfish reason, how do you deal with that? So let's start with one. And does that put mission first?
1: It doesn't. So uh, in a lot of cases, you're fortunate because it is a team that you're able to still, you know, overcome. And it's just an obstacle and something that You know hopefully is only an obstacle and something that's only a bit of a distraction that can be put aside to be able to accomplish the mission but in worst case scenario you will end up in a situation where it is too much of a distraction to be able to successfully complete your mission and that is unacceptable but there's um there's often reluctance to um counsel or to uh, correct deficient behavior equally when it comes to the difference between the sexes. And you know, some of that is just the way we're raised. Some of that's you know uh, people's upbringing and personal biases that we all bring to the table. Sometimes those rear their ugly heads in those types of situations. So can the mission still be done? Yes, but just like anybody who is not there for the right reasons, or it doesn't understand what they're actually supposed to be doing, it is going to have an impact. And it's really, then it puts onus on the rest of the team to be able to pull ahead and be able to account for that handicap. Uh, And then I believe part two of that. Well, Let
0: let, let me go to that one real quick. Where does that fault lie then?
1: Personally, I always put it on the individual However, in a military chain of command, you know, it goes both ways. So if somebody is standing by and allowing it to happen, then there is some, you know, some accountability that should happen there as well. But there's only so much you can do. Um, I had a, he retired as a master chief. He was a senior chief at the time who put me through the chief season, gave me some of the best advice when it came to being a leader and, being in the military is you know you kind of you kind of put everybody into uh, thirds you know there's going to be a third of people who are just going to be like your superstars and i'm paraphrasing and i don't mean to demean anybody about this just to try to oversimplify it for you know uh time but you're superstars and you're going to want to turn to them for everything because it's easy it's wonderful they get the job done you don't have to worry about them but they don't need your time they don't need your focus because they're already going they just might need rudder every so often maybe a little bit of guidance uh, but they don't need you then you're going to have the guys who are just let's call them mediocre for to be nice but you know you're problem children and there there's a group that are always going to be problem children no matter what you do they're going to demand your time because you know they, they're getting in trouble they're not doing the job people are getting in arguments and you name it their their time suck and at some point you're gonna to have to learn to let go and that's the hardest thing for a lot of leaders to do is because our people are a reflection of us and that's the same thing with the chain of command your your people are a reflection of you they're failing you're failing and so it's hard for you to turn around and say okay enough it's up to you i've done all that i can with you you leave the door open but at some point there has to be personal onus on them and then you have the people in the middle and these are kind of like your gray men you know the people who could go either direction they're just kind of average they don't cause any trouble but they don't stand out but if you spend all your time or your most of your time on them you can cultivate them into being superstars instead of letting them backslide into being with the mediocre crew And that stuck with me. And so every time I ran into somebody who was just sucking the life out of me, um, whether it be a colleague or somebody who was working for me, I did the kind of the imaginary line in the sand, like, okay, here's, here's this line. It was like, and then I left the door open, but it was up to them. They had their guidance. They had my direction. It was very clear. And I just moved on. You try to mitigate as much as you can to keep them from hurting everything overall, but you can't stop just because somebody's being an idiot.
0: So let's go to the second part of that then, because we, Mm -hmm. we, and that was my fault for cutting you off for that. But the second part in 21 years, you've definitely seen it. You you just talked about it, that you've seen it, whether by a colleague, whether someone that works for you. When you get into that situation, though, other than the line in the sand, there has to be an immediate response and then kind of a delayed response to it. So let's talk about immediate response to it and then a delayed response.
1: (laughs) Well, I was like, are we talking, you know, friendly office kind of response or are we talking, we are actually in the sandbox and lives are on the line because that kind of response is going to be different.
0: Well, and I think that we should definitely talk about both because that's how we're going to kind of approach this whole conversation that we're having tonight, because there are two different worlds out there that I don't think that the common person looking in sees. So let's start back in Garrison, back in, uh, you know, in the office and then we'll go to the sandbox.
1: Okay. Okay. So generally speaking, you know, if you're doing something that's staff wise, you are going to politic a little bit more. You're gonna be a little bit more polite, but if you don't have the wherewithal to actually address something while it's happening, you are essentially condoning the behavior and then it's going to continue. So, you know, yes, absolutely. And more than one occasion I've had to pull somebody aside and just have the nice talk of, hey, this is how you're presenting yourself, this is how it's coming across, this is not acceptable, this is the way we need to move forward. Some people are receptive, some people are not. Um, And then I found for some reason a lot of people are reluctant to put anything on paper. If you just have a conversation with somebody, that's great. That's the initial step, you know, kind of the verbal lowest um, form of discussion. But then if it repeats, you need to put something down on paper and you need to make it more of official. This is direction. This is your this is what we're seeing as you being. um, Not meeting the mark, something is insufficient, and this is how you're going to remedy it and get there um and if you keep getting paper on somebody at that point then you can look at things like you know the you know, non-judicial punishment or even potentially you know court martial depending on what the offenses are if you're downrange, uh, a higher probability is those um initial conversations are going to be a little bit more forceful and they're going to be a little bit more aggressive because nobody's going to sit around and wait to play nice or use pc language when somebody could potentially be risking another person's life. Um, so the stakes are significantly different. You know, you're supposed to follow the same pattern. You're supposed to have the initial conversation. You're supposed to document. Um, but there's a sense of urgency uh, and a real passion that comes to, you know, hey, bullets are flying, you know, rockets are launching, mortars are coming in, I don't have time to sit around and hold your hand or to coddle you. You either get with a program or you go home.
0: Do you think though? At sometimes, that even doing that, that you're not going to reach the person, and um, you're you're going to have the problem of you're in the wrong instead of them. And I've seen it Mm -hmm. happen before, where you try to address it, and everyone else goes, "Ah, they're a good person. Ah, they're this or that." And it just kind of gets overlooked until something bad really goes sideways on you. And then everyone's like, hey, I think you were right. Yeah. You think? I've I've been saying it for a while. And I I just wonder, with you being enlisted and warrant, because like I said, we want to look at both these things. Mm -hmm. With military services enlisted handling that kind of stuff and as a warrant, it would be handling it two completely separate ways, especially when you see what we just talked about where people are like, uh, eh, just overlook it, especially as enlisted, because you're going to see more on that level. You're going to see more friends, people that have come up in the ranks together, uh, yeah. people that have been around each other. Um, when you see that as enlisted, which I guess the first question would be, which one do you see it worst in enlisted or as a warrant?
1: <laughs> well, I say the warrant officer community is incredibly unique and you know there is no nicety. If one of us is messing up, we're going to come right at each other full force. I mean it's it's going to be old school. There's there will be no feeling spared. Um so luckily we don't do that when it comes outside of the community. So if you know you're dealing with an enlisted member, you're going to be a little bit more professional, but that's it, it's it's going to be more along the lines of what we just said you're going to get something very direct it's going to be here's what i'm seeing here's where you're deficient this is what you're going to do to remedy it and in a lot of cases when you're enlisted and enlisted and you find yourself in a situation where you're now a leader amongst your peers that is the hardest struggle that most people in the military have and Absolutely. it it's Absolutely. unfortunately not something you can really prepare somebody for, you know, you can you do the leadership training, they you get warned about it, you get told that to expect it. But then the realities of the situation are often um, overwhelming for individuals who then find themselves having to um, correct or even discipline a peer who happens to be a friend. And I mean, that's happened to all of us. And personally, I truly believe that when you have a connection to another person, if you have that rapport, you can find a way to be able to communicate what's going on in a way that they'll understand and that they will accept. Um, You might get some hurt feelings out of it. But if you really are friends, if you really are peers and truly have an understanding, you should be able to maneuver the situation. Now you're going to have the one offs. And luckily, those are one offs that are there's just no going back and it is what it is you know you want a good team you want a solid team and you want everybody to get along but liking each other isn't necessary working as professionals absolutely is and if somebody can't do that anymore then there are avenues to get somebody replaced and they can happen it just it can't just be a he said, she said, you have to do the, the work, you have to do the documentation, you have to get it up and down the chain of command, and it can't just be you. Uh, I found when I really, truly butted heads with people, I, I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. And so I would always have somebody there with me. So it wasn't just a he said, she said, it was, you know, I had somebody else as a witness to show exactly what happened. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but you know, military or not, we're still people and people are going to be people.
0: Now with you saying people are just going to be people. I want to talk about deployments and Mm -hmm. the way I want to break them down is you deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, you've done multiple ones, but I want to do these in a little different, not necessarily combat stories. I would like to hear a little bit of what went on during them. But what I want to talk about is first deployment to Iraq, mid-career deployment, Final deployment. Same with Afghanistan, because I think that we're gonna definitely see a shift in what you focus on, what your mission sense is, and what you're actually doing over there. So if we can start, let's let's start with first deployment to Iraq.
1: Okay, I would say first deployment to Iraq was in 2006, and. It was you know, I've talked about this before, but it was literally like living part of a movie. Um, It was a last minute thing I was filling in for at the end of a deployment that people had already been out for a while. And there was a critical gap in Intel, so I got a bunch of borrowed gear and you know an old M16. And I, I bring that up because everybody else has got their M4s and they have you know all the aim points and surefires. Everything's all kitted out and awesome and looks great and they're all super cool. And then there's me with mismatched body armor from probably the. <laughs> looks like an army surplus store yep pretty much i was like (laughs) i'm pretty sure the army surplus store would actually been a little bit more high speed low drag than i was but um you know my hodgepodge of kits pieced together i didn't know what half of it was never worn it before and i'm bag dragging my kit out to you know first kuwait and then out to and then i'm taking my first Hilo ride in under the cover of darkness into fallujah and you know that's fallujah 2006 that's it's the y west again and um to say it was surreal it it doesn't even do it justice i mean it was like having a scene from a movie playing out in real time and the second i got on the ground they had a white Hullux come and pick me up and i was taken to our compound on camp fallujah and it was game on it was throw your shit down we're going pardon my french um it there was no Are you jet lagged? Are you okay? I was like, Nope, you know, here's your workstation. Here's what we expect. Here's the battle rhythm. This is what we're going to do. And for the next six weeks, I think I was taking two hour naps. So I would work for a little while. I would go and take a nap and then I would get back up and I would do it again. I would work out, take a nap, do it again, over and over and over again. And the tempo was insane. I remember, it sounds silly that silly is not the right word but I, we got so used to taking mortars and rockets that i stopped reacting to the incoming alarms um especially with mortars it was like you know they're gonna hit where they're gonna hit you know great we got one coming in it could land on top of us it could land someplace else so i started just working right through it and you know, we had one hit right outside our you know our little compound and the Hesco barrier actually absorbed a lot of the you know the shrapnel and the debris. But I was sitting there typing away, just you know, you know, my, doing my thing. And then I felt like the shake up through the ground, up through your legs, and they just kind of stopped for a second. And you're just like, okay, that was close. Nothing's falling down. All right, go back to work, and then a few minutes later they come around, they're knocking to make sure everybody's okay and Climbing the Hesco barriers like 30 minutes later, so that way we could look and see where the impact crater was. But I mean, you kind of get that it's almost the, the everyday life is gallows humor. You, it, it's funny even though it shouldn't be, you make the best of it and you just keep right on working. But the tempo was such that you didn't really stop to process that type of stuff because you know, when that I, I was working. We came, you had a near miss, and I continued working. And I was working that night. We were getting guys out the door constantly. And, uh, you know, most nights they were bringing somebody back in flex cuffs who was going to have to sit and talk to me for a little while. So I was preparing for that. And it was just a go, 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 go. Um, wasn't a whole lot of time for reflection. Wasn't a whole lot of time for like true lessons learned. You do a hot wash at the end of every single mission. So that way you could refine things. But, I don't think we really were tabulating all of our, you know, true AAR points at th- that time. It wasn't until I started noticing in my 2007 and 2008 deployments that we were learning and we were evolving, like things as simple as sensitive side exploitation. You know, it used to be, you know, you have a bunch of team guys go and kick in a door and. They would just take a pillowcase off a bed and then just shove everything they found into it you know it's just they would come back and they would drop it in front of me like here intel guy do your thing like great you know okay where did you get this who's it associated with where was it located and you're i don't know it was in the house thanks um and then eventually it got to the point where it was it was now systematic it was you know, it was photographed in place we knew who it was associated with we knew the context of where it was picked up you know we knew who owned what cell phone or what laptop you know it made our jobs easier but it, they finally started applying the things that we had been learning from previous deployments and it did make a huge difference um we started pushing out you know a little bit more and you know it was difficult for me to be able to get outside the wire just because you know the The idea that, you know, it's harder to see a woman come home in a body bag than it is a man, but, you know, it it never stopped me. It never dissuaded me from continuing to try. Eventually, I finally won got my way, but we were able to go out and we were start, you know, doing operations from what we identified as like the seams of where our enemy had learned to exploit where they realized like hey this group over here has this area this group over here has this operating area but if we work just right here then you know we have a little bit more freedom of movement because there's no overlap and so we started gleaning that as well and adjusting and the more victories we had and the more we were able to start cultivating a, a methodology that evolved with our enemies and that we were able to then you know get more actionable intelligence be able to get to the next target and you know things were a lot more methodical it wasn't so much a you know hey you're a military age male with an ak so therefore you must be a bad guy it was like no farmer bad guy um you saw that evolution and so let me, so oops,
0: there, there's a couple questions that popped up while you're talking about that. When the very first thing you said, when they bring these guys back and they're going to talk to you for a while, I've got to imagine, especially talking about um, who we're talking about, the bad guys that they're bringing back. You've got to be behind the eight ball when you go in to talk to them. Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Uh, in interrogations, there are places that women are way better than men about it um, that that put people at ease to talk these guys are not looking to be your friend. They're not looking to shoot the shit with you. They are looking to kill as many people as possible. And when you, I don't know what the word would be, bring a woman in to talk to them about their trade. It's gotta be a whole different world for them.
1: It absolutely is. And most times that actually worked to my advantage. So I lost track of how many of these guys threatened to kill me. Um, but that was a, good thing instead of them you know like clamming up and saying nothing even if they were you know spewing obscenities at me they were giving me bits of information so the benefit of doing you know the military um interrogation is that it's not about I don't need a confession I don't I don't even care if you're actually guilty it's about what information you bring to the table and as long as your mouth is running as long as you are showing me emotion as you are you know saying anything even your abcs you're giving me data points that help me form a baseline that i could start picking up clues that then we can turn around and exploit. and i think uh, a lot of them assumed i'd be intimidated and so there was a lot of you know bravado um and that wilters very quickly um when it it doesn't have the impact that, that they're looking for so um, truthfully, the more they are angry, those were my favorite interrogations. So the more they hated me, the easier my job was going to be. Um, then you had the guys who are just assumed that, yes, I was there as the bomb who was going to be the kind person, like kind of the good cop versus somebody else's bad cop. And they would try to get me to, I have children, I have this, you know, really play the sympathy card again. They're talking, they're giving me information, even if it's not true through their you know their body language their inflection all of that is giving me something that I can work off of and then when we start getting into an actual interrogation now I have this baseline that they didn't even realize they were giving me for me to be able to identify when they're actually not telling the truth when I've hit a nerve you know those things that I can then turn around and jump up and down on to be able to get them to have the reactions I need or to be able to break them emotionally to be able to get them to be compliant to my questioning. And it's, it's not easy. I'm not trying to say that it is in any stretch of the imagination, you know, real interrogations take time, they take patience. And you know, it's, it's 3d chess blindfolded. It's not like you see in the movies. So not everyone's successful. But you have to be willing to be able to go back in and do the mental battle with somebody else for as long as it takes for, you know, if I only have 48 hours, I'm gonna use as much of that 48 hours as I possibly can to be able to try to break through to them. Um, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's like, you have to ask yourself if you were in a situation where you were being asked to betray something you care about, regardless if it's your country, your family, your friends, whatever the case may be, what would it take to get you to break? And most people will say, I would never do that. Everybody has a breaking point. It's just a question of what and how long it would take to get there.
0: And so when you're, when you're talking to these guys and you say that you're picking up on, because you don't need a confession. I never really thought of it that way. You really aren't looking for a confession that, Hey, I did this actual incident, but let's talk about exploiting the little things that they're saying. If they're telling you to fuck off and that, the, you know, as you're saying it, uh, oh, by the way, you can cuss on here. It's not a big deal. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're, they're telling you these this will be things easier for me then. <laughs> yeah. So it, when you're picking up on these things, what exactly, because I think that a lot of people would like to know stuff like this. What exactly are you picking up on then? If you're not looking for a confession and you're not looking for a quote unquote concrete answer, what are you looking for?
1: Well, to start off with, you need a place to start for everything. So when I say you're establishing a baseline, I think everybody has a little bit of experience in this where you're talking to somebody and you you just know, you know, they're not being truthful or they're hiding something or they're really excited about something you get like you you see the body language you see that they pause before they answer they hold their breath yeah there's all these little telltale signs and the more somebody interacts with you the more you get those little bits of detail so now say somebody's just telling me to go fuck myself like you know fuck you american over and over and over again do they pause before they do it at any point if i am telling them like uh, like i know you work for so and so and there's a bit of a pause before "fuck you american okay what was different say so they might be saying the exact same thing to me but it's now cluing me in that i'm on the right track and then part of the art of interrogation you know they teach you all these different methodologies for you to be able to formulate a method of approach that allows you to manipulate another person's emotions and um, their drives the their motivations in a way that it makes it almost impossible for them to not have a response whether that response is physiological or verbal you're going to get a response Um, the question then is how do you how do you interpret that? So the science behind it is just how do you do the approach? And then the art behind it is how do you read what you're seeing and how do you then parlay that into adjusting and flexing to be able to get that individual to continue to give you those bits of information? Um, If everything goes well, You will find that that you will start getting more responses and more responses and more responses and you'll be able to then start doing your questions you'll be able to do techniques that will let you know whether or not somebody is telling the truth and then you will find those bits of intelligence because again not looking for a confession i could i could care less if you did it or not i if it's in my best interest to accuse you of something to get you to say i didn't do that but i know about this that's fine. Or I didn't do any of this. All I saw was this. Well, maybe what they saw is that bit of intelligence I need. They did absolutely nothing wrong, but just, just the the panic of potentially being associated with a terrorist act might be enough for that individual to go, oh, okay, well, I saw this. Um, so it, that's what I mean when I don't need the confession. I don't need them to tell me, yes, I actually did it. I want to know how you got there, who put you there, what your routes were, where did you get your supplies, like all those other things. That's not part of a confession.
0: So the the question would be then, because you talk about, if you only have 48 hours, you're going to use the majority of that time to get as much intelligence as you can to pass on to whoever needs it. Correct. In anyone that's ever done an interrogation, an interview, whatever you want to call it, a conversation, whatever you want to call it, anyone that has ever done one, or done one for an extended period of time, knows that those mental things go both ways. It does. You get broken down. You have emotions that show. So let's talk about when that happens to you doing this.
1: I've been very fortunate that I have been able to maintain uh, my image while I'm in the booth, but I'm also from a school that they told us straight up it was like you go until either they break or you are you know say there there is a limit for your interrogator as well um but they also during training well let's say just say they poke you with a stick until you don't react so much anymore so there's a little bit of a a toughening so that way it shields you from having those kinds of incidents where you are no longer being interrogated or you're no longer the interrogator, you're now being interrogated or the detainee has an advantage over you. The question is, can you actually identify it before you inadvertently let something slip? And then I don't think there's an interrogator out there that does not have a story that stuck with them where the emotions of the moment or the circumstances just Each at you for one reason or another. Uh, for me personally, I, I had, um, I have a very strong protective instinct, particularly when it comes to children as like when kids in my book should be allowed to be kids no matter what. And anybody who takes advantage of a child is, a. there are no words for how horrible of a human being you are. Um, in iraq a lot of times you know even the teenagers they're a little bit not as um um, emotionally or mentally developed as you would expect like our teenagers to be which is funny to say because we all know teenagers are idiots but you know you have somebody who's say 18 years old that's iraqi chances are they're going to act more like a 12 or 13 year old if that that makes sense um And we had an individual who had been picked up as a kid. He was strapped into a suicide bomb. And for one reason or another, the, uh, the vest didn't detonate. And, um, he was picked up and he was put into a long-term detention facility and he had never talked to anybody. Not once. Just, they never really, they just kind of wrote him off and sent him off somewhere. He'd been in there for a couple of years. And, uh, I decided to take a crack at him just because it was in line with, um, some target sets that we were working on. I thought maybe just maybe this kid could give us something that kind of help us down where we needed to go. And so I had him brought to me. And for two weeks I went and sat with him every single day and I earned his trust and built rapport. And it really, it really was me plying him with like sweets like here's candy here's chocolate here's the things you're not gonna you haven't had for years and i let him be a kid and he started opening up to me and eventually we did get information that allowed us to take down the suicide network and get several more sfs that probably would end up on other kids so it was a huge win but for me personally i know i'm i manipulated a child and that haunts me to this day. And even though I know it was for the greater good, that kind of ethical quandary still stays with me.
0: Well, the question that begs from that, then you say that that haunts you to this day. I think another whole level of that is you're talking to a bad guy, whether he got picked up, we don't know the whole story of why he got put into a vest. We don't. And so you see it with the people that do these kind of jobs, law enforcement, first responders, military, sure. when you get jaded. And if anyone tries to tell you they're not jaded from it, they're lying. You, you, there has to be a little bit of that. So you get to that point where, yes, you are manipulating this kid, but there's a point where in your brain he might be kind of manipulating the situation too. And he's still a bad guy. How do you rectify that in your brain? Because I think a lot of people would want to know that.
1: Hey, that's the only one that ever uh, really bothered me. I you know I, I might be the outlier in this, but lying, manipulating and um, maneuvering, I guess, the other detainees, especially the adults, never fazed me. Not even the slightest, even even when I was flat out lying to them and earned their trust and knew that they were just going to be absolutely crushed, never fazed me in the slightest. And I I really do think the only reason it bothered me with that individual was because he was essentially still childlike. And I really do believe he was taken advantage of, but you're right. Um, How do you reconcile doing horrible things to horrible people?
0: Not, I don't even <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> think that. I I, I think th- more of what I'm asking is how do you reconcile this is a bad guy? And in, in in a certain way, you have to treat them like a human. You know what they've done. You know yep. these horrible things. Even though you're not looking for a confession, you know the things that they've done. That's more of the rectification, if that's even a word, that I'm kind of looking for in your brain is, You have to treat them. You have to have that level of empathy, whether it be fake, whether it's real, whatever it is. How do you rectify it in your brain talking to this person who you know has done unspeakable things and still keep it where mission first?
1: And say that is exactly what you do. You already said it is that it's empathy even if it is faked empathy part of the job is being able to well essentially being a high functioning sociopath you project whatever it is you need to project in that moment to be able to be sincere and convincing and to get them to believe whatever the image is and you know this kind of goes back to you know me wanting to be an actor then that's what it is it's acting it is it is real life ad hoc you know i'm making it up on on the spot you know imbuing a character but it's a character and that comes into play a lot in interrogation but it comes into play even more when you're doing source operations because it's exactly what you're talking about the people that you're talking to are the absolute worst human beings on the planet just because generally speaking they're the ones to have access to the information that is most valuable to you Well, they're not going to tell you anything if you're telling them how horrible they are and that they're making poor life choices they need to think that you're an ally and that you support them so you have individuals who you would rather shoot than ever talk to but you're not getting anything from a dead guy so you have to make friends with somebody who is an absolute important human being and you have to do it with your smile on your face you reconcile it in for me is because it is an act in my head i always know it's an act this is not me actually condoning this individual this is me portraying whatever i need to do to make sure that we get what we need and it's easy to say that because i've been fortunate enough to see the results of the information that i've been able to get so i know a hundred percent that lives were saved by the things I've done, so it, that makes it easy for me to reconcile being nice to the bad guy, even though I know the guy I'm talking to would cut my head off on videotape in a split second if the roles were re- roles were
0: reversed. Let's switch up to Afghanistan. We've talked a lot Ooh. about Iraq. Uh, completely different warfare, you think? Completely different set of human beings, and and we've just talked about your okay. the worst human beings in the world. This is a whole new level from everything that I've heard from guys that were there. Uh, it's a whole nother level, uh, in the fighting style, in their hatred, in their, their vitriol, everything. When you go over there, like we talked about in the first one, when you're talking to these guys, it's a whole new set of standards over there.
1: It is, it is. And that's, we would be um, repeating the mistakes uh, over and over and over again of everybody who's gone in there to think that just because it's a third world country per se or because there's, you know, uh, Islamic extremists there that they're one stop shop, that they're all the same. And they're not. Iraq and Afghanistan are could not be more different other than the fact that they enjoy sharing TTPs. Um, the culture is different. The people are different. The passions they have are different. You know, most Iraqis, uh, in my opinion, really didn't know how to function after Saddam was gone because their whole lives have been dictated to them. They, everything was managed. They didn't really have to think or do anything. They expected things to be done for them and then you have afghanistan where you have you know tribes who have been living the exact same lifestyle forever and they're very self-sufficient and they believe in honor um, it, it's a totally different dichotomy you know it's like they Which don't need honor
0: a, I, I just want to well, point out honor we're painting with a very broad brush
1: and it, yes um not necessarily honor as we would say like in the u.s military but they do have their own code their own system and their own belief structure where that they have you know they 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 live by and whether you agree with it or not you know all the different tribes you know have something that they truly believe in and they will live by that code iraq tends to be like well whoever's going to give me what i need most right now that's who i'm going to go with you don't see that in Afghanistan. So, trying to apply the same mentality and the same structure to both locations is a fallacy. Um, Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan holds a, you know a special place in a lot of our hearts. Um, it was the first place I ever saw a detainee. Uh, it was I was there in two thousand and four, actually. So, I went there before I went to Iraq. And war felt real to me there. Uh, Walking around, you know, Kandahar, seeing all the like just the bullet holes in what was left of the terminal, seeing where the J Dam had came through right in the middle, you know, seeing um, the Blue Mosque that they were starting to restore, you know, that was, you know, in rough shape. And then having to walk around everywhere, even on base. Armed at all times. Even if you were going to the gym, you were armed. Um, you know, seeing a graveyard of tanks, um, the warning signs that hey, there's probably unexploded ordnance. It it was I, I think movie sets would probably feel less real. <laughs> it was so just
0: Was it a step back in mm-hmm. time?
1: yeah yeah it was like time never moved forward there you, you could uh you could look and the mountains were actually purple and I've never seen that before you know and like you could see the total landscape and it wasn't just a complete arid desert like you would expect you know there were there was vegetation but then you would look in the distance and the mountains were purple and it was gorgeous but then you would see the people and it was like time had stopped it's it's difficult to explain, but you also get a sense there that there is no out. There's no out of Afghanistan. There's no winning Afghanistan. Uh, there's no military solution to Afghanistan. And I think that's the thing that has come clear to a lot of us over the last few years, especially after with the withdrawal. But When you're actually there on the ground, you feel the scale of that country. You really do. Um, There's a vibe that comes off the people. There's a vibe just from the ground itself. It just feels different. And it sticks with you. It's like, hell, I'm pretty sure I've got kit bags that still have dirt in them from my time in Afghanistan somewhere. But I think I knew it then. it's like, there's probably a lot of people you've talked to that, you know, just felt like going into Afghanistan without a clear goal of why we were there or executing based on that clear goal was destined to fail.
0: Where, and even if you can answer this, I don't know. And this is kind of how we'll wrap this part of the conversation up. Where did we do more good? because you you speak almost poetically about afghanistan iraq seems to be a place afghanistan afghanistan you you even speak about it more eloquently you take your time to talk about it where do we do more good if it's a no win never out country how much good can you do and then iraq is kind of a after Thought, I, I guess you would say. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean by the way that you, the the way that you describe the warfare that's going on there. So where do we do more good? Because both, I believe both places needed us. I believe that the mission of keeping that away from the United States by going there is an absolute truth. Um, where did we do more good at?
1: In my opinion we did more good in afghanistan and unfortunately things backslid way too quickly and it's it's terrible to see now but it can't take away from the good that we did with the time that we had there so if we're looking at everything in totality and not just you know the last you know year erasing everything we did before that then i we definitely did the most good in afghanistan because there was a chance there was a chance people had an opportunity to see something other than what the cars they were dealt with they had an opportunity to make their own choices they had an opportunity to see what life could be like outside of you know the harsh rule of sharia law um, and some people embrace that. And I don't think we've seen the end of people who are activists who are fighting back. I mean, we've had stories in the past of you know schoolgirls standing up to the Taliban, like, I'm going to go to school. Uh, that's going to continue. And I think part of us being there was gave a foundation for people to then be able to stand up and say, this is what we want to do in our own country. How long it's going to take for anything to ever change substantively there? It's another question. Iraq on the other hand, because they have been browbeaten for so long by, whether it be war or by their own leadership, um, sectarian violence, they're just looking to survive. So I don't think we did much in the way of good in the same scale there just because all they're doing is biding their time for the next regime change and seeing what these people are going to do for us. Um, truthfully, you know, we, we kind of gave the country to Iran, which might not be in the best for anybody.
0: Looking back on your career, Afghanistan, Iraq, boot camp, everything, are there any regrets?
1: No, actually, uh, there was a time, you know, when I hit about the halfway point point. it was 11, 12 years in and I had the opportunity to either re-enlist or gut it out for the rest of my career. And I had a moment of doubt where I wasn't certain if I was making the right choice, but I gutted it out and I can unequivocally say it was the right choice whether or not I want my children to join the military. um, I will leave that to them, but I hope against hope that there will not be a situation where they will have to find themselves in an Iraq or an Afghanistan where they will be called off to, you know, fight in a, you know, a global war. But I I think that's what every parent wishes.
0: Well, while you're in uh, you worked with, special warfare, all these kind of things. I want to talk next about the books. Um, and, and then we'll of course end up with what you're doing right now, but with the books, do you believe that that career was what helped shape the way you were going to write these books? Because it's everything pretty much that we've talked about team and being a protector and all these different things. Do you think that that career is what led to this?
1: To the style of book, probably. Um, I, I've always had a thing for thrillers, but it was more suspense thrillers growing up. And then eventually I came into things that would be considered yeah, probably more you know, uh, crime thrillers. And then I didn't get into the military stuff until much later in life. But the inspiration for these definitely came about 100% from my time downrange because that the experiences i had fueled my imagination is like i had those moments where i could see scenes playing out in my head just based on the what if scenarios so you know you you're doing the convoy down the dark road and you start playing out those what ifs and for me the what ifs became a way for me to articulate a story cuz i I'd, I'd played with the idea and it never really went anywhere until I took advantage of the what if and then I just let that run and it ended up working. And so I was able to take a lot of my real life experiences, uh, the, the colorful cast of characters that have been in my career and have a compilation of them that became my team or even you know adversaries that are in the book are fueled by some of my real life adversaries. <laughs> um and it, there's something very cathartic about being able to you know put my thoughts and emotions and feelings into my characters and let them work through some of the things that i would have liked to have been able to do you know like lee child talks about you know fiction being you know the thrill that we can't get in real life you know this it's kind of what it is so um a character working through ptsd you know and then Maybe if I'm having a rough day at the office and I decide I want to really run and strangle somebody, I can come home and strangle somebody on the page, and you know nobody gets mad about that. But you know I can have that, you know that cathartic release of emotion, and it's been as therapeutic as it has been creative for me.
0: Let's go over your list of characters because I would say that your your style of writing and your your hero, uh, your protagonist in it, is different from a lot of protagonists. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Um, And I think from, you know, I've read your latest Shadow War Um, and you and I had talked when you sent it to me and I said, do I need to read the other two before I read this? And you said, no, you can jump off with this one and you'll pretty much understand. You're exactly right. What I noticed about your character, though, was uh, there's a lot more, let's say, emotion uh, and and. I don't want to use the word feelings because I don't really think it's feelings, but emotions that that all of your characters, not just Elle, goes through. So is there a reason for that in your writing? Because it's different than a lot of people do.
1: As I I, truthfully, I do think it's because it is an outlet for me. As I, I try very hard to let the characters speak for themselves and then put myself in. Just let them flow. But because I've had the breadth of experiences and trying on all these other facades for me to project to whoever, you know, like in an interrogation booth, a source I meet, I like to think that I have a pretty fair emotional lexicon to be able to articulate how somebody might be feeling in those situations. Um, so it it adds flavor, it adds color to my stories. But at the same time, it does allow me to explore, you know, things that are could be touchy subjects like I am, I'm not an overly emotional person, I tend to be a little bit stoic in real life. Yeah, yeah. it's like, I'm a bit of a bit of a clown. I do like to cut jokes, but I am not somebody who anybody wants to you know, like, Hey, let's go watch whatever the latest rom-com is. They're like, no, it's it's like pulling teeth. You know, it's like, I have zero desire to go. I have no, that that's not my thing. I don't like to sit around and cry. Like everyone's like, Oh, what's well, it's so sad. Read this. Nope. Not my thing. Um, so <laughs> I think in, I think being able to explore the emotions of my different characters in my books is good for me to be able to have an outlet when I, I think I, kind of repress
0: a lot of my own emotions so let's get people excited for these books that may have never heard of them so let's run through all three of the books and i want you to give kind of a kind of an outline of each book and kind of how the story progresses through not giving away any spoilers or anything but let's start with shadow game and kind of move all the way through shadow war
1: okay So Shadow Shadow Game was my debut, and it introduces the world to Ella Anderson, who is a CIA uh, covert operative. So Black Ops is, is her thing, and she's been able to bring on a very small team to be able to help her in her operations. And in this case, she only gets called in for things that would be otherwise viewed as an impossible task. So what is the most impossible task facing most of us today? Eh, That's terrorism. And so she gets called in to take out ISIS. But it's not the conventional methodology. So we're not talking just straight up bullets to the forehead. She wants to dismantle the group so that way it implodes. It cannot come back. It cannot reshape or reform. And so doing doing that will take a level of cunning and trying to get the group to destroy itself from the inside. Over the course of her trying to accomplish her mission, uh, there's interference from higher, which sets off a chain of events that unfortunately ends in a bit of a tragedy. Um, Elle barely survives, but when she comes back going into the deeper shadow, she's now determined to finish the job, but suffering from the effects of PTSD. And so that shadow, the deeper shadow really kind of goes into what it's like to be somebody who is an operative, somebody who wants to be in the field, somebody who needs to get the job done, but who is now hamstrung by the battle that's ranging inside their own head. So how do you balance that? And then come to find out there are threats that she didn't even realize that were at play and when we go into shadow war those threats have come full circle handler a former handler has come out of the shadows to make sure l is gone for good he is going to stop at nothing to destroy her it's not enough to destroy her career he wants her dead so shadow war is literally a collision of two spies with a grudge match that's going to end in an epic, epic finale.
0: And so when you, when you write these books out and and you put them out there, um, like a lot of these guys that are military that are coming out, we talked about it in the very beginning. uh, People don't look at, at what some people can do and so this kind of second part of your life has opened up a whole new, and I know it sounds stupid, but quote unquote chapter for you, another another chapter in your life. But you've taken what you've learned and put it into a new mission. And we talk on the show a lot about people kind of lose that mission, lose that focus after their careers are over. What have you done in writing these books to make sure that you still have that focus on a mission and you really turn the page? Once again, none of these puns are intended. Uh, They work perfectly. Yeah. But that, that you continue going forward and not sliding back.
1: So the books, you know, I actually do put a little bit of, you know, reality in them. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, especially veteran, uh, fiction off, there's like to pull realism in there. So, you know, when you're talking about your mission, you know, uh, Shadow War is a perfect example. So the, the segue from what my life was into what my life is going to be, uh, there's a subplot in there that deals with human trafficking and, you know, that kind of how that world touches into both fiction and reality for me is, you know, just like it is in the book. There's, there's this undercurrent uh, that requires l to be involved and you know that reflects me in real life because you know a good friend of mine is the chief of operations at deliver fund and he offered me the opportunity to do a skill bridge with them and if you're not familiar with the dod um, skill bridge program it's a phenomenal program that doesn't get enough play, but essentially for the last six months that you're on active duty, before you retire, you have the opportunity to go and intern with uh, a company. So that way it kind of gives you a look of what civilian life's going to be and allows you to take the skills that you've picked up um, during your service and actually start applying them while you're still being paid by the, by the Navy. Um, They're essentially helping you ease that transition and it's brilliant. And uh, luckily, I've been doing that with Deliver Fund. So everything that I learned from my time doing you know the the whole you know counterterrorism mission set that we have, and additionally, you know eventually moving past CT into you know kind of the, the great power competition that where we find ourselves now, all those skills are something that then I can take and I can parlay and use to help law enforcement, you know, find, fix, and finish, you know, human traffickers. So like my books kind of mirror my real life where I'm taking things that I used to do and I'm now moving it into something that I'm doing now.
0: Was that the intention the whole time or was that added in as you got closer and closer to the third book?
1: (laughs) Um, Actually, it was a happy, happy coincidence. When I was writing the third book, I, I, I incorporated the subplot because it felt real to me. It felt like something that I really wanted to explore and get involved in. I've have been a, a supporter of Deliver Fund before that, but I actually reached out to them when I did the initial draft and said, "Hey, will you read this and see if I'm hitting the right notes? I want to make sure, like, basically, do research. I want to make sure that I am capturing this correctly." And that started the conversation between you know me and them. And eventually like, Hey, have you heard of squeal bridge? Mm, Yeah, I've heard of it. Hadn't thought of it. Like, (laughs) wow, we have an intern position if you wanted to apply for it. So it like the book actually was the segue for me to do the internship. And so that was a methodology for me to get the process started.
0: When you go to this, uh, it's a little different. Um, when you're talking about deliver fund, because you're, you're talking about human trafficking, crime, helping law enforcement. This is going to be a completely different switch from what you did in the military, because where you weren't looking for a confession, you are now it's everything. Yes, there is intelligence involved (laughs) in it, but it's everything.
1: They say, luckily for me, um, I can leave that part of it in the hands of the professionals, so for me, um, my, my skill set is fairly varied. You know, it's like I've done everything from targeting all the way being the person who is getting the information that then gets put into the Intel cycle. Um, so now I am in an analytical role. I can use all of my experience, all my insight, everything that I picked up in the last 20 years to help me then do the finding and fixing to then pass it on for law enforcement to finish so uh, at this point it is me using my knowledge of bad guys how bad guys act how bad guys move things do things and um kind of the skills i learned just being intel in general to be able to find the individuals that we either need to be arrested or rescued and so um it's it's not being on the. uh, the the pointing end of the spear i'm not kicking in any doors there's there's nothing like vigilante about anything that we're doing it's just enabling law enforcement to be able to do things that they might not be able to do otherwise just because of the limited um resources manpower you know there's only so many hours in the day but if you have somebody who's willing to do the legwork to find you your bad guys or to find you the people that need your help then it makes it a lot easier for law enforcement to be effective and to execute um, successfully.
0: Yeah. And, and and in saying that though, you're not on the pointy end of the spear anymore. Do you think knowing just in our conversations we've had, do you ever think that that's going to bother you that you're not on the pointy end of the spear or is doing analyzing Finding and fixing, is that gonna be enough?
1: At this point in my life, I can say truthfully that it is. Now, once upon a time, it would not have been. Um, I, I'm not gonna lie. There it's it's taken me a while to come to grips with the fact that I'm older. <laughs> it's time for me to uh let the younger generation do the running and gunning. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact, you know, I'm a parent It's like, I'm a mom and my kids take up, you know, a lot of my time, but they're my priority now. So my priorities did shift. Um, The drive is still there. The bug's still there. I still get jazzed about a lot of this and I get fired up about it and I still have, um, a lot of the passion, but I am at a point where I'm comfortable accepting a support role and not being the person who's actually boots on ground.
0: Well, if you don't mind, I, I asked you before this, if we can talk mm-hmm. about deliver fund a little bit. And I-, I just want to point out a couple things. Of course, you and I talked and you said, there's a couple things that you can't talk about because they're ongoing. But I think if we talk about it in, in kind of an overview, I think I think that people will understand it a little more now, as far as everything that I've read on these guys, it it, it deals with a lot of human trafficking is, is what you're dealing with. Now we've had a lot of guys on the show that, that were involved in border patrol customs, all those kind of things. And, And at one point, and right now really we're dealing with a humongous, uh, gang war, a drug war, um, and now human trafficking, uh, I, it was interesting though. I talked to a guy that worked '70s and '80s Border Patrol, and it was human trafficking back then. And it's kind of made a full circle. So if we can talk about what kind of Deliver Fund does and what they're here to do. Okay.
1: So you have to actually understand when you say human trafficking, it isn't necessarily like Liam Nielsen's taken. Um, Is that a faction facet of it? Yeah. But essentially, when you talk human trafficking, it is anything where a human being is being sold as a commodity. So you could be talking labor or, you know, more prolifically, in my opinion, um, you're talking sex trafficking. So that could be, you know, all the way from the stereotype that we've seen in the movies where somebody's being kept in a basement somewhere, you know, being sold off on, you know, the black market, you know, and, uh, the dark web, or it could be, you know, something that nobody really thinks about in, you know, the pimp, who's down the road from that gang, who's, you know, smacking somebody around to go out and get him his money that is human trafficking. So how do you, How do you assist law enforcement in combating something like that and that's what deliver Fund is there for the whole concept was to be able to take people from the special operations community from the intelligence community who spent all your time all our time tracking down people um and take that skill set and apply it to human trafficking because trafficking weapons trafficking drugs Trafficking people—it all goes the same routes. They have similar methodologies. They use the same mode of thinking. If you have somebody who's purely business-minded, you can have an, uh, an idea of how they're going to progress, how they're going to do business, um, and an understanding of human behavior when it comes to you know illicit activities. You know, terrorist or trafficker—it's an illicit activity, and they're trying to do it clandestinely, and they're trying to do it under the nose of whatever law enforcement agency is out there so you can there's a lot of parallels between what I did and what I'm doing now that I can bring to the table um that and it's a different line of thinking so you take somebody who's been law enforcement forever and you take somebody who's been military forever there are two different uh methodologies for the way you think or approach a problem and when you combine those it's incredible what you can come up with you know the the different ideas, the different directions, and all of that can then be brought to support whatever law enforcement entity we're partnering with. So um, because it is a nonprofit, uh, nobody's getting paid for it. It's nobody's making law enforcement pay for anything, um, but it, that kind of makes it some. Um, project based so it's not one of those things where i'm just sitting back and i'm scouring the internet to try to find you know a bad guy x over the entire continental us or somewhere in the entire world we get scoped in because we have a partner like this law enforcement agency is looking to do something about trafficking in this location and that then focuses us in and then we're able to take um you know like the proprietary software and just the know-how of decades of experience between everybody from different facets of either the military or the, the private sector and bring it to bear to be able to then focus in that investigation so now you don't have let's say a department with like two detectives trying to figure out how to tackle something that could be a monumental problem we now hand them like hey here are your most promising leads. Here's where we think you should focus your attention. Here's how we can support. Or if they come back like, Hey, this is what we have. Then maybe perhaps we could give them some manpower hours to be able to help them develop something out further that then they can take and execute.
0: Well, I think it's a lot bigger problem than a lot of people think. And I want to use some of the numbers that are on deliver funds website. They say 1,435 adults were trafficked as an adult for the first time. Now, the interesting point of this is what I want to point out. You said that it's not necessarily just moving humans for sex trafficking or anything else. 400 plus of those individuals out of the 1,435 were trafficked for labor, just labor in in particular. Now, I'm sure that could break down into sex trafficking, labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, massage parlors, things like that. 62% of the incidents were instigated through text messages. Now, the big thing that we see in borders, because they have the top states for human trafficking, Texas happens to be one of them where I'm at. The big thing that you see is high-risk victims that are being moved from the border up into here and then kind of hubbed out of Texas into different parts of the United States, East Coast, West Coast. With this kind of stuff You say that you help out these individuals, but it almost seems like an overwhelming task by helping out individual departments, because yes, you may have decades, hundreds of years of experience behind you at deliver Fund, but you're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of departments, individual detectives that you're trying to help out. So how do you guys cut that down with just those numbers and really shave out time to make a difference?
1: well it's like i will let the senior level management go into the exact particulars about how we come up with the partnerships but in a lot of cases it's somebody who's asking for help so if you have a department that says we ha- we know we have a problem and we need an assist you know that is something that we can then partner with and they just reach out and ask it's very simple um, and then we'll establish a, a partnership we'll assign a team and then we'll be able to support them and what they're trying to do specifically so it can't just be a scattergun it can't just be like you said we you know it's happening you you know it's there you know it's prolific and it, it's painful to think of it that way but you can't come at it with a scattergun approach you can only go in it with what you have the ability to be able to support and in this case it's if somebody says yes i need help then that's what we're gonna do um those partnerships are growing there's more and more partnerships happening all the time, especially, I think, because people see the return on um, investment within the partnership. You know, I, I don't mean monetary. I mean, in time and effort um, The there's nothing in it that is a negative on the department side. So any police department who gets involved, they're only going to come out of it with something more than they already had. So whether or not it's something they then execute on or not, that's entirely up to them, but because there's no cost associated with it and we're not taking any resources away from them, we're only giving them resources. um, It's beneficial.
0: That, that would beg the question though, when, when you say that and, and you only work with people that are asking for help, I would have to imagine though, coming from a law enforcement world, that being civilians, being military, there's a lot of distrust right up front. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure that there are ones that call and ask, but I would think there has to be a disconnect in there somewhere where they're like, mm, yeah, you might have been good at hunting terrorists. I don't know if you're <laughs> necessarily good at hunting these guys.
1: No, and that's completely fair. And, yeah, you know, they're. There are professionals at Deliver Fund who go out and they try to make sure that they answer those questions. They make sure that everybody gets that warm, fuzzy to understand what what's being offered, what's being brought to the table. But they also have to make sure that expectations are very real. It's like there is no 100 percent guarantee that anything like any particular thing is going to be found you never really know what you're going to get into until you get into it and i don't think anybody's going to sell that as in we are going to answer all your problems but we are a resource that is offering help and it it, it's out there so it they do outreach they They talk to as many people as they can they offer classes for both law enforcement and for people who are in a supporting capacity to be able to not just you know understand what deliver phone brings to the table but understand the problem sets they have um you know Survivors, thrivers, who you know, people who were trafficked, who are now turning around and say, you know, helping train law enforcement in how to approach and uh, deal with individuals who are being trafficked. You know, who understand the mentality, who understand um, the nuances of you know that that lifestyle, and then they can help better prepare law enforcement just in being able to deal with them on a day to day basis. So it, it's a bevy of resources and. It's open for anybody who wants to be able to, you know, take advantage of it. And I don't think anybody in the headshed at Deliver Fund is going to turn anybody away. So we're going to find a way to support in any way we can. Those expectations will have to be managed at that point. With hey, you, we only have, you know, two people who might be available to help you out right now. You're not going to take down a massive crime syndicate or maybe you will, but probability you're not going to be able to take down, you know, like a 500 person syndicate.
0: Well, and you're also in the middle of writing your fourth book. So let's (laughs) let's manage expectations here. Okay. Now the question that I do have from you, I told you they bring up the five biggest States in the human trafficking. You got California, Texas, Florida, New York. Now here's the interesting one to me, and I'm hoping that you maybe have an answer for it. Ohio. I'm not saying that because you went.
1: I was going to say, is this because I'm from Ohio? No, I was like, I, is this?
0: <laughs> but I'm, I'm really wondering because when you look at California, Texas, Florida, New York, they're major hubs. New York City is like the center of the universe. Miami brings from multiple countries. In Texas, you have the border across the whole bottom of it. California, you have LA connections with the whole West Coast. So those are understandable. Why Ohio though?
1: Well, it it is the heartland for a reason. You know, you're right in the middle uh you, you have all the great lakes, so you have all that op- that that water that's transitable just like everything else, you know, so you have methods of entry and a lot of those methods of entry probably are not being watched all the time. Um but it is also right in middle of America. Does anybody pay attention to what's happening in middle America and then you get small towns in middle America, where people are desperate, and desperate means opportunity for anybody who's a predator. So you go to those types of places. So they have potential access by being able to utilize the waterways, uh, the major transit, you know, all the hubs that come through there, major highways, turnpikes. Um, there's a lot of transient personnel that go through there, but then you know you also have you know a, a victim pool. So uh, any place where you go, where you have lots of methodology for people to be able to move about, you have um, that freedom of movement to come in and go and potentially take people with you.
0: Well, and, and it's interesting to that, the four other states, California, Texas, Florida, New York, they have the highest populations in the country. Ohio doesn't. The interesting fact to that, though, is New York has 454 uh, and Ohio has 450, which is not a very large number considering what you're talking about. But I never thought of it that way. Being the heartland, you could really hub and spoke out of there to go kind of go everywhere in the United States. And y- y- really, you're not just talking about the southern border. You're talking about the northern border, too, coming mm-hmm. in through Canada because – as we all know from history, a lot of terrorists slip in through the Canadian border because, like you said, it's not watched as closely as the southern border is.
1: I feel like I need to make an Ohio joke here. It's like, like, nobody actually wants to go to Ohio, but <laughs>
0: they do. I, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I, it, I, you know, I, I won't say either way. So uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, how can people get it? into deliver fun how can law enforcement agencies how can people in general and i'm guessing that you guys don't just take tips like people can't just call in tips do you okay so
1: you now let me say yes you absolutely can reach out and communicate with deliver fun and i know the person who generally um gets those tips because they will take them um But just like everything in the intelligence community, you know, everything's going to be verified and it's going to be, you know, double, triple verified. And those are are some of the things we actually did learn, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq is, you know, single source intelligence is detrimental. So even if it sounds 100% plausible, if it can't be verified, then it's, it's just information it's not intelligence so people can reach out to deliver fund with tips they can you know uh, throw out anything anonymous you know that could potentially be a lead but it's going to be followed up on it's not going to be taken just out of hand. And then, same thing with law enforcement. There, it, like all the contact information is on the website. You can reach out and you know establish contact with Deliver Fund. There are senior analysts. There's liaisons. They will reach out and they will set up a time to be able to talk through exactly what we bring to the table and be able to figure out how best to support your specific needs and your specific mission.
0: And so, whenever this kind of kind of synergy goes in, I think that a lot more things can be accomplished, especially with those smaller departments that you're talking about, but the large ones could benefit from it too. Uh, if anyone's looking to get in touch with them though, it's deliverfund.org is where they can go. Everything is set up on there where they can go in and find out who to contact. Um, and like you said, it's not about that, but they will take tips. They'll verify them, pass them off to law enforcement if they're double, triple verified. Uh, even, uh, even if you don't think it's an important thing that you see, it might be on the backside of it. So always keep in mind some of the smallest things sometimes that you see could end up being a very big potential clue or a big potential lead in what they're needing. So, uh, I guess that would be the best thing to say is just people keep their eyes out, not only law enforcement, but people in general, because this is becoming a huge problem, um, all over the world, but it it has really been focused on lately in the United States.
1: And it's the thing I think surprises most people is, you know, you have this idea that it only happens overseas or it's only um, foreign nationals who are being smuggled in that that this is a part of. And that is a factor, but I don't think most people realize how many Americans are being trafficked in America. And yeah, I think, it's terrifying but you know that's that's kind of one of the uh, the fallacies behind all this you know we have this idea of baby like this hollywood glamorized idea of what human trafficking is but it's not that i mean it's the pimp on the corner all the way through like what you see in the movies so it's anybody who's being sold as a commodity
0: yeah, absolutely. So guys, once again, if you're looking to help out deliverfund.org, and I'm sure they take uh, donations and things like that to help yep. fund the cause. So once again, deliverfund.org. Uh, we need to go back and we need to talk about where people can find your books so we can start kind of <laughs> heading towards the end of this. We we talked about them, but I wanted people to know where they can pick them up and uh, to get excited. Now, one of the pictures that's not up here is the graphic novel. So- you turned it into a graphic novel, which is a very cool idea. I'm guessing all of the other ones are going to be graphic novels at some point.
1: That's the plan. That's the plan. Um, I'm actually hoping to get picked up. Uh, I'm going to be querying it just like uh, you do with a regular book, but querying it with some of the, the major comic uh, publishers. Yeah. Uh, my agent should have put it in uh, in a guy over at Dark Horse's hands, hopefully soon. Um, but I would love to be able to, take what we've already done in what I've called my uh, initial proof of concept of the graphic novel, and then let them run with it and make it into something spectacular and then continue on with the deeper shadow and shadow war.
0: If it's ever made into a TV show movie, who plays your lead?
1: Alicia van Kanner. Okay. Tomb Raider. All right. Yes. Well done.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I can pull it out. Uh, and she's got a bunch of stuff coming up too, where, um, she's actually another hero and I can't rem- I just saw it the other day, what it's going to be. And I cannot remember what it is, but she's got some new stuff coming up, but wow, that really flew off your, uh, off the top of your <laughs> brain. So I guess you've been thinking about that for a while. Okay. Where can people find these books?
1: So, they're available on Amazon, and they're also, you can get signed editions on my website, which is amadare.com. And um, yeah, they're available uh, paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Uh, Shadow Wars audiobook is being recorded right now. So, hoping to have it available by the end of the summer.
0: Where can people find you?
1: I am all over social media. So you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as uh, there's a contact the author portion on my website. So you'll be able to reach out to me that way.
0: Okay, guys, uh, if you want to find out a little more about the books, where you can find them, you can actually purchase them all on the website too. So I think that uh, it would be a good idea to go directly to the source so you can get that autographed. <laughs> if you if you for some reason don't want to go directly to the source, you can go to Amazon, like she said. Uh, it's available in Kindle form. And, and look for it uh, at a lot of different places um coming up i think that it's going to be for a lot bigger uh, outreach coming up
1: yeah it's a, right now i'm in a couple of indie stores so uh jerseys cards has my graphic novel and then um my entire series is at uh, the book dragon shop in staunton virginia so yeah, you know, right now with indie stores which i love and i want to support them as much as i can um, but eventually we'll probably branch out even further
0: Okay, guys, we'll have up everywhere that you can find her on social media. She is, of course, everywhere, like she said, on social media. I think we're connected on all of them, and and it ends up being a total thing. Guys, if you want more of me, you can find me at Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Also, don't forget, dtdpodcast.net. That has everything based out of one location for you. You'll be able to see uh, the photo pushes that AM sent to me today. There was tons of them. We'll add them to our episode page. So you'll not only be able to hear and watch her story, you'll be able to look at all the pictures of the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, I didn't tell you that when I asked you to send them. Also, guys, don't forget to check out Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. That's our sponsors. They're an officer-owned business, and they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they are made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Every batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee some of the best you'll find, but it also serves an important cause. They give back to our law enforcement community. 50% of their profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. This week, I want you guys to focus on Hot Pursuit, their brand of medium roast coffee. You feel the thrill of sunset, chases under highways lined with wild palms by partaking in the medium roast contained within this blend. It evokes unparalleled atmospheres of the 80s. So if you like Miami Vice, you guessed it. This Colombian variety is best served hot to maintain the seamless blending of rich body and honey floral notes that they've picked for you don't forget to go to them please and don't forget djk10 when you get your order for 10 percent off that's going to be it for this week am i'm so glad you came on here and told your story i'm so happy about it that's going to be the show guys that's am i'm dj that's going to be the show we'll catch you on the next <laughs> one we'll see you later